Hebrews 7, this is the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore... If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people, For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Thus far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be in this worship service. And we pray, Father God, for your tremendous blessing on the preaching of your word. Please, Lord, do what I cannot do. Please work by and through your spirit in the hearts of your people, and even draw sinners to the Savior tonight, we pray. Please turn our eyes to the Lord Jesus. May we ever trust and hope in him 
our blessed Redeemer and Intercessor. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Without question, one of the most significant inventions in human history is the bridge. Bridges are structures made of either natural or man-made materials that provide passage over all sorts of obstacles, such as valleys, depressions, rough terrain, bodies of water, or otherwise challenging distances. Bridges remain of paramount importance for the founding, building, and flourishing of human societies, and have served such purposes since the time of their invention by the ancient Babylonians several thousand years ago. Before then, bridges were made of natural resources, like wood, stone, and dirt. As such, they were limited both structurally and functionally, but this changed when the Babylonians began to use brick to construct the first real bridges we find in history. It was their knowledge and skill in engineering and manufacturing that produced bridge building that would eventually spread worldwide. Later on, about five to 600 BC, the ancient Romans started a bridge-building revolution whose engineers found a way to use volcanic rocks to make mortar, enabling the construction of brick and mortar bridges, much stabler and larger structures than had been possible before. Now, with the advance in bridge-building, the Romans were able to connect distant lands across three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. Rome also mastered the use of arches to make bridges lighter while being able to bear much heavier loads. Many of them are still standing to this day. Much later, in the 18th century AD, architects in Europe began using cast iron. This harder material allowed for new bridge designs and systems, but this was quickly replaced with the advent of steel and concrete. And today, most modern bridges are made of steel, reinforced concrete, iron, and cables. There are over 600,000 bridges in the United States alone, some approaching 1,000 feet above sea level, and some measuring 15-plus miles long, bridging tall mountains and spanning vast landscapes, lakes, and seas. There are millions of bridges worldwide, some 30, 50, even 70 miles long. The longest bridge on the planet is the Danyang Kunshan Grand Bridge in China. It measures 102 miles long, it cost approximately $10 billion to make, required more than 10,000 laborers to build, and carries the Beijing-Shanghai High-Speed Railway to transport passengers by high-speed trains between these two global cities. Now, all of these bridges have enabled us for thousands of years to transport food, water, supplies, building materials, and trade resources. We've been able to build civilizations, move populations, connect international communities, wage wars, subdue lands, and stimulate massive economies through the use of bridges. Some of these structures are even able to withstand earthquakes and other natural disasters. We have built bridges to literally reshape the world. And now we have begun to bridge the distance, so to speak, between Earth and other planets and solar systems through space exploration. As human beings, we are the builders of bridges. But there is one distance that we could never bridge. Should we have all the materials and human innovation thriving at maximum capacity? Should we build bridges from Earth to the moon or Mars? Should we build a bridge from one corner of the universe to its furthest opposite? There is one distance we could never bridge, and that is the distance between fallen sinners and the holy God of the universe. 
The distance between God and the creature, even in a state of sinlessness, was already so great that God had to condescend to enter into a relationship with humanity. But when Adam sinned, it compounded the distance. It added to the creaturely distance the separation that results from sin. The human authors of Scripture, they felt this separation between them and God because of sinfulness, and they cried out, Can a man be pure before his maker? How then can man be righteous before God? For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. This separation between us and God we could never overcome. This distance we could never bridge, not by our prayers, not by our own repentance, and not by good works. We could never bridge this infinite chasm, the infinite gulf between God and fallen humanity, and that is why we needed a mediator. We needed an advocate. We needed an intercessor. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ alone who obliterates the separation. He is the bridge that spans that infinite chasm. He is the ladder that connects heaven and earth, not only that the high majesty would condescend further to save us, but that we might ascend into heaven upon Christ. He is the bridge. He is the mediator. And that is why we praise and worship him today. Now as we consider Christ the mediator between God and fallen men, and in particular for us, his people, we are going to focus specifically on the intercession of Christ. As we look at our text, we are going to consider four points. Number one, Christ's unique qualifications to be the intercessor. Number two, his ability to save. Number three, coming to God through him. And number four, the efficacy or power of his intercession. Again, his unique qualifications, his ability to save, coming to God through him, and the efficacy of his intercession. Let's begin with point number one, Christ's unique qualifications. Keeping within the context of the book of Hebrews, many things could be mentioned, but there are three main qualifications that make Christ uniquely qualified to be our intercessor. The first is his absolute deity. This is a vital necessity that our mediator and intercessor be truly, fully God, because God is the only one who can restore sinners to himself. God is the one who must take the initiative because this is something that no mere mortal could do. This is why it says in Isaiah 59, verse 16, God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. Therefore, in Hebrews, the Lord is first introduced as the divine son and supreme revelation of God. He is eternally begotten from the Father the brightness of God's glory and express image of his person. He is the uncreated creator of all things through whom the worlds, heavens, and earth were formed, upholding all things by the word of his power and the rightful heir of all things. Jesus Christ is absolute deity. The second of Christ's qualifications is his true full humanity. This is a vital necessity that our mediator and intercessor be truly fully human, because we needed someone who shares in our nature to be a suitable mediator for us. Someone like one of us, 
Someone to live perfectly according to the moral standards of righteousness required of us. Someone to be a suitable death substitute in our place and someone like us to advocate on our behalf. Therefore, Hebrews says, Inasmuch as we have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. In all things he had to be made like us, his brethren. Why does he say this? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he is truly, fully human, and that fact will remain through the endless ages of eternity. Now let's pause for a moment and just think about the humility, love, and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to remain like one of us, even in his glorified state. Surely, if an angel were to come down as an ant and die to save the race of ants, you would expect the resurrected angel to then set aside the form of his humiliation as an ant and return exclusively to the greatness of the angelic state. But Christ is so wedded to us. He is so truly one flesh with us that he retains his humanity. He sits on the throne of heaven not only in his pure deity, but as glorified humanity, son of God and son of man. The third of Christ's qualifications is the supremacy of his priesthood over the priesthood of the Levites. And Hebrews has much to say about the limits and ineffectiveness of the Levitical priesthood and how Christ's priesthood is so much better in every way. So let's spend a few minutes on this. First of all, the Levitical priests, like us, were fallen sinful men. The first high priest under the law was Aaron, the same Aaron who fashioned the golden calf and led the Israelites into idolatry. His sons, Nadab and Abihu, immediately after being ordained for the priestly office, offered up strange fire to the Lord and were struck dead by God for it. So the priests were fallen sinful men like us who had to first offer daily sacrifices for their own sins before they could offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Second, the Levitical priesthood was under the law and therefore ineffective to perfect the worshipers. It's not that there was a problem with the law per se, only that it was incompatible with human sinfulness. It wasn't God's remedy for the problem. Therefore, Hebrews says, perfection could not come through the law. And by extension, perfection could not come through the Levitical priesthood because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Third, their priesthood was also limited to a merely earthly service because they served in the copies of the heavenly things. You see, the earthly tabernacle and its furnishings were mere copies of that which is in heaven. And the ordinances of worship for an earthly tabernacle could not save. For example, regarding the animal sacrifices, Hebrews says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So we see that the copies were earthly and unable to save. And fourth, the term of their ministries was limited. A common priest served from 30 to 50 years of age. The high priests from the line of Aaron, though they served throughout their lives, they all died in due time, which was precisely the problem. Throughout their, though their ministries ended in death, you had priest after priest after priest. So Levitical priests were fallen sinners, 
They had to first offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could do so on behalf of the people. They served under the law, which brought further sin, condemnation, and death. They served mere earthly copies of the heavenly realities. Their gifts and sacrifices could not perfect the conscience or take away sins, and all the priests eventually died and returned to dust. That's all you get with Levi. These were the limits and weaknesses of the Levitical priesthood, but Christ's priesthood was so much greater in every way. Psalm 110 and Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 state that Christ is priest forever, not according to the order of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? There's a lot of disagreement about this, just to put my cards on the table. I do not believe that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ. For anyone who wants to stone me, please do it after the message. Melchizedek is admittedly a shadowy figure in the Old Testament. We see him briefly in Genesis 14, which we read in our first scripture reading. He is then mentioned in a prophecy about the Messiah in Psalm 110, and then again here in the book of Hebrews. Now, though we don't have much information explaining who he is, the inspired author of Hebrews uses Melchizedek, as well as the information we know about him, and the information we don't know about him in order to make claims about the greatness of Christ and the superiority of his priesthood. So let's look at this. How does the author of Hebrews use Melchizedek to point to the greatness of Christ and his priesthood over against the Levitical priesthood? Well, first, it begins with the name. Melchizedek, his name literally translates to king of righteousness which makes obvious connection to the Lord Jesus. Second, Melchizedek was said to be the king of Salem, which means king of peace. This too makes obvious connection to Christ, who is called prince or ruler of peace. Christ is the true king of righteousness and the true king of peace. Third, Melchizedek is said to have been priest of the Most High God. So we see that he was both king and priest, which is significant. You see, in ancient civilization, almost universally, the kingship and priesthood never mixed. They were separate offices occupied by separate persons, but Melchizedek appears to have been both king and a priest of the Most High God. Well, how does this relate to Christ? Well, we know that Christ is not only our prophet, but he is also our priest and king. And as such, he is better than the priests of Levi who were priests only. That's the author's point. Fourth, the writer of Hebrews notes the absence of a genealogy for Melchizedek. In other words, there's no record of his ancestry. And here is where I believe the author uses this absent of a genealogy to draw a comparison between Melchizedek as a figure and Jesus Christ, who is eternal. In other words, when you read Genesis chapter 14... It's like Melchizedek is briefly just sort of airdropped into the story. He doesn't quite fit. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know where he goes. He quickly vanishes away, and his person and history remain a mystery to us. Well, the author of Hebrews uses these as figures. Figuratively speaking, he had no father, mother, genealogy, 
beginning of days, nor end of life, because none of these details were recorded for us, but was comparable in these figurative ways to the Son of God who is truly eternal. Christ, with the power of an endless life and priesthood, is therefore better than the priests of Levi, who all died. Fifth, Melchizedek is said to be greater even than Abraham, because he pronounced a blessing over Abraham. And the rule is that the lesser is blessed by the better. Also with Abraham, we see that Abraham gave a tenth of all he had to Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews points out that when Abraham did this, Levi was essentially in Abraham's loins because Levi and his priestly descendants had not yet been born. Thus, it is as if Levi too paid a tenth to Melchizedek through Father Abraham. Therefore, the point here is this, that Melchizedek is greater than both Abraham and Levi, and being that Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, Christ is most definitely greater than Abraham and the Levitical priests, again pointing to his superiority. Now, these are only a few of the comparisons between Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus, But these are not the only reasons Christ's priesthood is supreme over the Levitical priests. Hebrews has much more to say about this. For example, the Lord Jesus was uniquely appointed to his priesthood by God's divine decree. And this by two unchangeable things. God's eternal counsel and having sworn it by an oath. So being that it is impossible for God to lie... His eternal counsel and his oath are what appoint Christ as priest forever. Then you have the life, ministry, and passion of Jesus Christ. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and lived the life of a perfectly righteous man. He loved righteousness and hated lawlessness and was therefore holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. He can sympathize with us as he experienced our natural weaknesses. He also suffered, was tempted as we are, yet without sin, and was perfected through his sufferings. Then he endured the cross, despised the shame, destroyed the devil through his death. He rose from the grave, passed into the heavens, and made full and final atonement in the true tabernacle that is not of this creation. As the captain of our salvation and great high priest, he appears in the presence of God for us. He offered up himself once for all, and he only needed to be offered once to thoroughly propitiate, to provide full satisfaction for and purge our sins by his blood. By the one offering up of his one sacrifice, he has perfected us forever, having obtained eternal redemption." He is now the guarantee of a new and better covenant. He brings in a better hope through which we may finally, finally draw near to God. He takes away the old order to establish the new, which sanctifies us through the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And after he made his offering, he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty because his atoning work was absolutely complete. Now he is the one who sanctifies us. He is the one who releases the captive souls. He is the one who cleanses the conscience from dead works and puts the law in our hearts to serve the living God. And he grants us access, access into the holiest place by the blood 
by a new and living way that is so far over and above what Levi could ever obtain for us. We have access to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and help in time of need and temptation. We can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And he is both the author of our eternal salvation and the perfecter who will bring it to completion. Brethren, these are Christ's unique qualifications. He is truly fully God. He is truly fully man. He is greater than the Levitical priests, and he is a priest who lives forever, and priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He is superior to them all. He has obtained a more excellent ministry than them, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. He is highly exalted even above the angels. He is now seated higher than the heavens at the Father's right hand, and this will never change because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He continues forever in an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, in these respects, there is no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that can be mentioned in the same breath and in the same universe as the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is uniquely qualified to serve as the great intercessor. So that's point number one. Point number two We see his ability to save. Again, Hebrews 7, verse 25 says, Therefore, in light of all these things, he is also able to save to the uttermost. Some people are qualified for certain jobs, but they are unable to perform them effectively. However, Christ is not only qualified for his office, but he is able to perform it effectively in saving sinners. This word for able comes from a verb that means to be powerful. It's not just a capacity to do something, a potential strength, or mere ability, but it is active and effective power to cause something to be. Jesus Christ is powerful to save and to the uttermost. Now this phrase, to the uttermost, this is an unusual construction in the Greek, but it essentially means unto completeness or unto perfection. It's like we might say to the nth degree. And this has implications both in terms of the extent of salvation as well as time. In other words, used in the context of this verse, it is saying that Jesus is powerful to save absolutely, to the fullest extent, unto perfection and for all time. And this is the good news for poor sinners like us. The poor sinner may ask, how far can salvation go? What are its limits and its boundaries? Charles Spurgeon is helpful here. He said this, it is to the uttermost from all our doubts and fears and follies and failures. Jesus will bring us by his endless intercession to the uttermost from every consequence of the fall and personal sin and actual death, Jesus by his intercession will save us. To the uttermost, oh, think of it, to the resurrection life, to clearance at the judgment seat, and to the highest glories of heaven, and to boundless bliss throughout the ages, he will save us. Now there may be someone here or listening online, saved or unsaved, who believes him or herself to be the chief of sinners, covered in guilty stains and beyond the reach of the arm of divine mercy. But hear this. Jesus is powerful to save. 
He is powerful to raise from death to new life. And if you belong to him, no one can snatch you out of his hand. He is powerful to keep you because salvation that is both complete and forever necessarily entails your perseverance in the faith. He saves to the uttermost. And if you ask how, on what grounds is he able to save in this way, I say, he can save you because he did not save himself. Brethren, he took your guilt and suffered the punishment. You deserved to die, but he died in your place. And that is why the poor sinner goes free. And then he rose. He ascended into the heavenly temple and appeared in the presence of God for you. It's just like the high priests used to do in the Old Testament. They wore these elaborate priestly garments. And on the shoulders were set two stones on which were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And on the chest was a breastplate upon which were set twelve precious stones to again represent the twelve tribes. And so the high priest, once a year, as the representative of the people, he would literally and figuratively bear the names of the people before God's mercy seat. Well, in similar fashion, but infinitely greater, Christ, the great high priest, bore your name before the throne of God above, not written on his shoulders, but graven upon his nail-scarred hands, and he will never forget or lose those for whom he was pierced. He is able to save to the uttermost. And that is point number two. And this takes us to point number three, which is coming to God through him. Again, our text says, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost, who? Those who come to God through him. Now this word for coming to, this also harkens back to the Levitical priesthood. It is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used in the Septuagint for both the priests and the people approaching God in worship. For example, the priests are said to come to the altar, to come to the veil or the holy place because they ministered in the presence of God. You can picture them drawing near within the tabernacle. However, the people who were not priests are only said to come before God or before the Lord because they were unable to approach the altar and the holy things. You can picture them standing outside in the courtyard of the tabernacle because that was as close as they could come. In other words, though the priests and the people would both come to God, the priests approached God in a way the people never could. However, in Christ, he saves so perfectly and to the uttermost that this distinction is forever done away with. Christ appeared before the Father for us that we too might be able to draw near to God through him, not stand afar off in some outer court. We no longer merely come before God without being able to approach him in most intimate service and communion. No, we come directly to God himself through Christ. And coming to God through him, we are reminded of the words of our Lord, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me, and I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So we come to God through him, but we must also come in the manner that he commands, and this involves both humility 
and a singular devotion. As regards humility, we cannot come to God in pride and self-righteousness. The pride of the quote-unquote good man who thinks he deserves grace or just needs a little help to enter heaven. No, we must come with the sincere cry from a heart that is sorrowful for sin, hungry for the bread of life, thirsty for the living water, acknowledging one's spiritual bankruptcy and looking to Jesus as the all in all. As regards singular devotion, there is no such thing as coming to God and bringing only half of yourself to him. We must have the earnest desire to surrender completely to him, giving up our sin and giving up our lives to the Lord. We cannot serve two masters. Again, Spurgeon is helpful here. He asks, do you fancy you can walk with God and walk with mammon too? Will you take God in one arm and the devil on the other? Do you suppose you can be allowed to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of Satan at the same time? No, the whole man must seek after the Lord. And the poor sinner in coming to Christ has only one object. If all the world were offered to him, he would not think it worth his acceptance if he could not have Jesus Christ. Take this whole world and just give me Jesus and come to God. Draw near to God through him. If you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, the Lord calls for you to humble yourself and come to the Lord Jesus. Come to Christ, the one who bled and died for sinners and now reigns above as Lord of all. Cry out to God through him and he is able to save you to the uttermost. And to my brothers and sisters, what a wondrous miracle that we, by sovereign grace, have come to God through Christ and now may continually draw near to God through our Savior. We have not only the benefits of his earthly life, death, and resurrection, and the privilege to come to the throne of grace, but we have another tremendous blessing, and it is the benefit of Christ's unending intercession for us. And that takes us to our fourth and final point, the efficacy, the power of Christ's intercession. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since, because he always lives to make intercession for them. The efficacy of Christ's intercession is owing not only to his sacrifice in death, but the power of his endless life. During the intertestamental period, which is the time period after the Old Testament was complete and before the coming of the Lord Jesus, the rabbis and Jewish writers, they spoke of the hope for a priest whose ministry would be unending. The best example I could find is from a book called The Testament of Levi. This book is not scripture, but it does help to shed light on the hope of the Jewish people from that time period. The book speaks of a good and just high priest who will have no successor unto generations and generations forever. You see, they were very much aware of the history of wicked priests who had led the people astray from God and away from his holy worship. Even during the intertestamental period, with the rise and influence of the Greek Empire, Many priests corrupted the priesthood for political reasons to be in good graces with the empire. This caused many of the people much anxiety, questioning themselves. 
What will the next priest be like? Will he honor God's covenant? Or will he lead the nation into God's wrath all over again? And this explains why the writer of the Testament of Levi would look forward to a priest who is virtuous and immortal. And this explains why later on the writer of Hebrews would recognize such a high priest in the Lord Jesus. He is the virtuous and immortal one. And yes, he offered himself as a sacrifice for us in death. But if Christ died and never rose again, his priestly work would have come to nothing. This is why it says in Romans 5 verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The Lord Jesus lives. He said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Praise Christ that he lives. Yet it is not only that he lives, but that he continues to live for us, his people. We can say, yes, he loved me and gave himself for me in his death, but we may continually say, he loves me and gives himself for me in his life. He lives in fullness of power and glory, and he devotes his endless life to the benefit of our immortal souls. From Spurgeon, he said, Christ, by his death, provided all that was necessary for your salvation, but he, by his life, applies that provision which he made in his death. He lives on purpose to see brought home to you and enjoyed by you all those blessed privileges which he purchased. He is as much ours on the throne as he was on the tree. He is ever living to apply to us with his own hands what he purchased by the nailing of those hands and the piercing of his heart upon the cross. With our interest in the Savior's death, we have as much interest in his everlasting life as he always lives to make intercession for us. He is always praying, he is always interceding, and he is always succeeding in that intercession, showering down innumerable blessings, so far are they beyond count and measure. If he ever ceased to intercede for us, we would perish, but he readily and willingly and cheerfully and tirelessly intercedes for us, which benefits we constantly enjoy. He intercedes for the conversion of those who have been given him by the Father. He intercedes for comfort for those who are in pain. He intercedes for fresh graces for those who've fallen into sin. He intercedes for strength to bear temptation, to resist sin and serve the Lord in all our labors. And he intercedes for the perseverance of the saints in holiness unto eternal glorification. He always lives to make these prayers for you. And those prayers do not return to him empty and you are the beneficiaries of every one of those intercessory prayers. This is the efficacy, the power of the intercession of Jesus Christ. And so in sum, Christ is uniquely qualified to be our intercessor. He is mighty to save to the uttermost. We draw near to God through him, and his ongoing intercession is powerful to convey to us everything that we need for this life and the next. And this is where Paul asks, 
What then shall we say to these things, brethren? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now as we close, let's conclude with a few applications from the text. First, just to clarify a potential misunderstanding. It is important to view the intercession of Christ within the context of the love of God. And what I mean is, it is possible to imagine that Christ is interceding with desperation to a father who is constantly angry with us. And that the son is always anxiously pleading to appease an angry father, but that is not the case. It's not as if the father is beginning to bubble over with wrath and the son begs, no father, please don't cut them off. And the father reluctantly withholds his hot displeasure. Some of us may have had earthly fathers who gave vent to anger in this way. But this is not our father and this is not the reconciliation that we enjoy with him. God's wrath toward us, his people, has been thoroughly satisfied to the full. And we are never in danger of his judicious wrath again. The father is well pleased with the sacrifice of his son. And because he is well pleased with his son, we are fully accepted as his sons in Christ. And so the son, he intercedes for us in accordance with the father's loving will. The father hears and is pleased to grant what the son asks for. And the blessings are then imparted to us by the Holy Spirit. Thus it is the Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, one in will and purpose, who agree in bringing about our salvation, preservation, blessing, and the perfection to which they are bringing us. Second, and more to the point of Christ's intercession, we find all of our sufficiency and confidence in Christ alone as our priestly intercessor. That means there are no other intercessors needed. And this is vitally important because there are systems of thought out there, such as Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, that teach, only, even if only by necessary implication, that there are many intercessors whose intercession is over and above the basic intercession we offer up for one another. We don't need Mary. We don't need the saints of some special status, and we don't need their merits. We don't need a sacerdotal and sacramental priesthood of men, which is entirely foreign to the apostles and the New Testament. And we certainly don't need Christ offered more than once, such as with the Eucharistic sacrifice. Now, there's all kinds of ways that they try to get around this and make it consistent with Scripture talking about heavenly liturgies and that being represented in earthly liturgies and this doesn't exactly contradict this and time doesn't permit to get into all of that but the point we are making here is this. Who would read Hebrews? Who would read the sum of the scriptures we've read tonight? Who would read their Bibles and get any of this? 
We, need on, we only need the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. Now, on the opposite extreme, you have religious traditions with no intercessor at all, such as Islam, at least in the way that Christ is mediator between God and man. And without an intercessor, that leaves nowhere else to look for sufficiency and confidence but in yourself and your own good works. But we look to our all-sufficient Redeemer, who though he is not offered continually, is nonetheless continually on display in heaven forever. His once-for-all sacrifice and the scars of his wounds speak night and day for us. We love a perfect Savior, who is a perfect priest, who offered a once-for-all perfect sacrifice and continues to make perfect intercession. Third, with Christ as our always living intercessor, we can come swiftly, boldly, and frequently to God with all of our needs, whether needs of mercy, needs of strength, or needs of provision. For needs of mercy... When we sin, we sometimes hide from God, as though our sin has made us unfit to appear in his presence. Brethren, we were never fit to appear in his presence, even after being saved. We were never fit to appear in his presence in the first place. And after having been granted access to appear in his presence through the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not us who now either maintain or lose that access by our own doing. Christ granted us that access, and as Christ ever lives to intercede for us, it is he who retains for us the same immediate and unlimited access to God, because it is all of Christ. So if you have fallen into sin, and we all sin, you need mercy, and if you need mercy, there is only one place to get that mercy, and that is with Christ. Should you need mercy and God be so angry as to send you elsewhere to find it when he knows it is only to be found in him? He knows mercy is only to be found with him. And because of Christ, he is ever ready, willing, and cheerful to give it to you if you come seeking mercy in sincerity. For needs of strength. We all need strength in our lives, not least of which because we desire to grow and be useful to God serving him in everything we do. But the sinful tendency is to become self-reliant. When things are easy going, we have the illusion of being in control. And when things begin to get out of control, our instinct is to rely on ourselves to try to fix them to our liking. But we must always remember that we can do nothing apart from Christ, even draw our next breath. So it is on him that we must rely. And knowing he is our great intercessor, we can pray and look to him for strength at all times. He desires for us to come, and he will uphold us according to his will. For needs of provision, I have heard some people say, I don't ask God for much, but when I really need him for something, then I go to him. Now this is obviously wrong-headed, but how many of us are guilty of living in this way? We assume upon God's provision of our most basic needs because very few of us have ever been without them, and we aren't as prayerful and thankful for them as we ought to be. But when we sense a specific need, then we go running to God. 
Brethren, we must remember that every good gift comes from above, and it comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We would have nothing apart from him. He intercedes for our every need, and we can have confidence God will provide for us because we are his children, united in Christ forever. So whatever they may be, we can go swiftly, boldly, and frequently to God with our needs, knowing Jesus always lives to intercede for our needs. And fourth, as we aspire to be like Christ, we should aspire to be diligent intercessors in prayer. And there are many people for which the scriptures instruct us to pray, beginning with the church. How often do we pray for our pastors, lifting them up before the throne, given the great responsibility of leading this church and caring for and watching over our souls? How often do we pray for our deacons who manage a massive budget and have to make important decisions about finances, building projects, different initiatives, the future of the church, and distributing funds to saints who are in serious financial need? How often do we pray for one another? Pastor Bob, in particular, has admonished us over and over to get a hold of the church directory and pray for one another, both generally and for particular needs we know about. There is no greater kindness than to lift one another up before the throne of grace, and we have covenanted to do this. Are we keeping that covenant? How often do we pray? for lost family members, friends, and associates? Or have we become so impatient or unloving towards them that we have given up concern for their immortal souls? Brethren, these people stand on the verge of eternity with one foot hanging over hell, and until hell shuts its mouth upon them, we must plead for divine grace. How often do we pray for revival in this nation? Or is it just a lost cause? a losing battle, and a ship that deserved to sink to the bottoms of the ocean. I ask you, is there anything that is too hard for the Lord? We must pray. And there are many other things for which we are commanded to pray. So let us learn to intercede like our great mediator above and be like Christ who always lives to make intercession for us. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, but above all else, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great mediator, advocate, and intercessor. We thank you that he ever lives to represent us before your throne and to pray for us. We thank you for all the grace, strength, and provision that comes to us through him. Father, please help us to trust in him more to cast ourselves and our cares upon him, knowing that he cares for us, is able to uphold us and intercedes for all that we need. And we also pray, Father, that you would help us to be like him in interceding for others, including the lost. We pray for those who do not know you, even listening to this message. We pray that you would draw them to the Savior and be merciful to them as you have been merciful to us. We praise you and thank you again for the Lord Jesus, and it is in his matchless name that we pray. Amen.